Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Paul Kulik, chef, business owner, and entrepreneur. Paul Kulik spent 20 years cooking in Omaha before opening the Boiler Room restaurant in 2009. Born in Berlin and raised in Omaha, Paul began working in kitchens at the age of 15. Although Paul completed degrees in both engineering, physics and French, his true interest lay in the kitchen. Paul credits working with Stefan Lazel at Washington DC's Montmartre for cementing his love of French technique. Though Paul spent time working in Chicago, Washington DC, Paris and Berlin, his return to Omaha led him to current partners, Mark and Vera Mercer's La Bouvette. The five years spent running that minuscule francophilic wine bar helped Paul forge relationships with local growers and dedicated producers of top quality traditional foods, which ethos he has extended into restaurants, the Boiler Room, Le Bouillon, Via Farina, and wine store, Howard Street Wine Merchant. Paul has been named a James Beard Best Chef Midwest semi-finalist, and I'm delighted that Paul is here with us today. Hi, Paul. Happy to be here. There's one little note. So yeah. as of Jan 1, 2017, I'm no longer with The Boiler Room. Okay. So that's just the one thing. Mark and Vera and I are still in great terms, but they are now my landlords at Louisiana. And, uh, and as much as I love that restaurant and my heart and soul has been left on its doorstep, it is in the rearview mirror. You know, it's funny because over, okay, so we opened Boiler Room, that was January 2009, so we're almost, you know, we're, we're here on this nine-year anniversary, and it was the depth of the recession here in, in Omaha, so it was the worst performing quarter in anybody's recent memory, economically. We had a very kind of challenging menu, it was a menu that was, and I'm a... Um, somewhat of a contrarian type personality in, in, in the sense that I like do like to challenge people. And so, you know, this was our, instead of eat, opening softly, we're going to open hard. We're going to express really what we're going to be about and we're going to plant that flag and stay, stay as true to that as we could. And then uh, we were going to do that in a white tablecloth setting, terrible economic time to do that, be um, locally sourced. It's January in Nebraska and it's like, Minus, t- it's in, it's one of these insanely cold winters, buried in snow. The only thing that we can get really locally are the meats that we're getting and black radishes. So forget produce, and um, and hello Omaha, here we go. And by the way, we're going to learn on the fly too because we have a staff that has to get up to speed. Key people who were really kind of prepared for it, but frankly, the whole staff was coming along for the ride, myself included. Kind of first kitchen really to run. So yeah, that was a very steep uh, steep uh, climb to try to you know get that separation velocity or escape velocity all that stuff was that that was that necessary bullet catching or whatever you want to call it to get people and I mean this with a ton of due respect to the dining public but get people to just just change hearts and minds two degrees to say that there are people and now it turns out an awful lot of people who care an enormous amount for your dining experience. And wouldn't it be nice just to take advantage of that and all that sacrifice that goes along with it? I mean, some of it's like caricatured, like, uh, 
you know, Bourdain kind of caricatures it and a bunch of 22 year olds like to caricature it and Instagram likes to caricature it, but it's really being hard actually. And it's really hard to do when you get older and you have a family and you have relationships and the money sucks and the timing sucks and the work sucks and it's death to your body. And that's real. And that's not fake. The stress is outrageous. It's stupid. I remember one of the first days of service, like first actual days where I was in a kitchen cooking and we're sitting there and it's a lunch service. I don't even know how many covers we did. Like people are freaking out. It's like, ah, it's this big mess. And you know, I'm, I'm like, it's lunch guys. It's like lunch. This isn't like battlefield triage. This is lunch. And it's so weird. I mean, I'm sure now when I we have new people come into the kitchen and they, they experience that for the first time, the kind of the thrill of the rush of service, because there actually is a lot at stake. If you care, if you're in the kitchen and you care, if you're in the kind of behind the scenes, you're working like extremely hard. We were having a conversation beforehand just about how hard you work to make it look like you don't work hard and that all this stuff happened without there being a bunch of sacrifice to make happen, right? Your experience. It's a really long answer, but there's just like so much, so many little detail pieces to this kind but of thing. Given that you've painted such a dark, dismaying, <laughs> depressing picture of being a chef and running a restaurant as a business, I mean, obviously I have to ask, why would you bother? Yeah. And then I think a number of other questions are going to fall out yeah. of that. But let's start with that. What, why, why do you do this? In part, it's... So I do believe that food is culture, right? So I think that the expression of culture happens in a lot of different places, but I think that it happens through, through cuisine. And it can be in a lot of different places. It can be in the household. It can be in the... You know, you're just... your your conventional table. But the degree to which you take that seriously what you eat seriously. And then, because if you kind of zoom out from there, to get it to the table required a chain of custody, right? And all those people along the way are significant players, right? Whether it's the large distributor or whether it's, a, you know, the rickety old, you know, Volvo station wagon or whatever to the farmer, to the provider of the seed and et cetera, to the person who is prepping it or preparing it a la minute to the diner, to the server who brings it to the diner. Like that whole chain of custody actually involves quite a, quite a number of people. And, and then it's just, we're talking about exclusively in the restaurant setting. Well, what about, you know, the, the retail setting? What about the table at home? How do you, I mean, do you have any idea where you would go procure half the ingredients now that you might be able to get at two dozen places around town, but you can't get at your own home? I mean, it just seems insane, right? Short answer, you get into restaurants because you get the thrill of the rush, right? Because all that tension and all that stress has, you know, there's like this, there's this adrenaline kick. A good busy service is just like, a th it's this thrill. Okay, you want to extend that over six months to a year? Open a restaurant because it's, and you're not sleeping and it's never, you know. So there is a juice that you get from that. And that's a huge part of it. So, you know, what do you do afterwards, right? It's, you know, it's midnight, you're settling down, you have a couple of beers, you go party with some friends, you know what I mean? It's like, and then you do that till three or four o'clock in the morning, then you sleep until one or 
whatever, then you get up and you go to service at three o'clock or whatever, and you go do that, you know, cycle over again. So, so the people who are professionals by and large are people who are just kind of caught up in that lifestyle, uh, whether servers or cooks and, and, you know, and so I can understand the suspicion from the dining public's point of view. Then there are a few restaurateurs who are maybe sort of taking advantage of some, you know, there's like a huge supply chain of almost completely prepared products or, or you know, the shortcuts. What is it? Um, there was a guy quoted in the World Herald for a food review saying it was goof proof. Yeah, goof proof food, right? So, so then, you know, like, so then, you know, you don't need, you don't really need to rely on your cooks to prepare food. So all that kind of stuff um, created this environment where on the one hand, people were, were patting themselves on the back as the broader sort of conversations you'd have patting themselves on the back about how dynamic and healthy the Omaha dining scene was. When in reality it was, I mean, to say that it was 20 years passe would, would, would be, I mean, the most generous statement I could say. It was like 1960s cruise food. It was, it was at its best, right? And at its worst, it was like, it was, you know, just, just kind of thoughtless. given that there was perhaps an anemic expression of culture through food in this community for a period of time, why would you want to apply your craft and art here? Two sides. One is selfish. I really wanted to have places to go eat. Right. I thought that was important. I don't know why I love Omaha as much as I do. I just do. We moved here when I was young. I grew up here. I tried, you know, to get away. When I did, I'd get homesick. I love so many people that are here. I hate the climate. I, you know, there's a lot of things that I, I wish that were more, you know, the city was more urban. I like, I yearn for like this bygone era of a beautiful urban landscape, all this kind of stuff. I think all this stuff that, you know, is this like the Omaha of my dreams or whatever. But I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't know why. I just do. And I felt like it was exceedingly important. And it just seemed, it seemed just insane to me that, and by the way, there was already cultural awakening happening in other fields, right? So like the, the kind of the musical awakening and the relevance of the Omaha sound or whatever was happening. So there was, there were plenty of examples of, of it happening elsewhere. And it just seemed like, it just seems like a really important subject. And it seemed and I'm a contrarian, so it seemed like an important thing for me as someone who was prepared for the fight to take on. When I say prepared for the fight, I mean, like there were other people, this is what I'm saying, you know, Mark and Vera are part of that, um, to, to take that on. And so, 
And so we did. And, and I think every day we were open was sort of a mini success story because it wasn't easy and people certainly didn't embrace it, right? I mean, there was this bifurcation. There was a group of people who were just like, this is important and we want to support it. And I'm sure that we gave people bad experiences as we were going through that learning curve. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there were a number of shortcomings as we went through the, the whole uh, kind of growth um, because we weren't a complete restaurant when we opened. Uh, that having been said, each day was a learning experience for everyone involved, and it emboldened other people, I think, to sort of say, okay, this is probably, this is probably safe now, right? There's a little bit of a wake, and we can, we can surf that wake a little bit. But now, I mean, here we are almost a decade later, and it's just incomprehensible to think of a, of a culinary landscape, anything like 2008. Right? I mean, it's incomprehensible that we could go back to that. Uh, you mentioned goof-proof food. Mm-hmm. If you feel that you have a role to play in contributing to the culture of society, then does that mean that goof-proof food in some way is a good thing? Uh, one might think of uh, Blue Apron or, or food packages right. that are delivered. Right. Or have we actually lost something? We've lost oh, something yeah. in the kitchen. We no longer oh, yeah. know how to prepare our food. We don't know basic kitchen skills. We don't know where our food comes from. So yeah. are you still responsible in some ways as a professional who is vested in, in this expression of who we are? I think it's fascinating that in the last two generations, we've gone from theoretically grandparents who were intimately aware and had a repertoire of foods, maybe not all of them from scratch products, but in a pinch probably, like a pantry item type product, and to now where you're right, and yet, right, have you, I don't know, I'm sure you've done this before, you've probably cooked in someone's house who happens to have a home built in the 1920s, and you realize these kitchens are torture chambers, they're impossible, there's like, there's like no counter space, the refrigerator is like across the room from where anything is that you want, there's no room on either side of the stove, so you can't cook, it's like no one who ever cooked actually built a home, right? And now we have these vast kitchens, these gleaming, you know, granite, stainless steel, just, you know, better homes and gardens, full space, you know, two page spread type kitchens. Everybody has one. It's like key for everybody's house and nobody knows how to cook. They're opening up mac and cheese and dumping them into one pot. You know, it's like, it's like what, what kind of weird upside down universe we live in. But you're right. The repertoire, I mean, to me, that's the key piece, right? So the repertoire of what your home cook has at their disposal, how many days can do you feel like how many days, and this is a question for you, how many days do you feel like you or anyone in your home could cook consecutively, morning, night, and evening, uh, from pantry type scratch products without repeating? You know, how many days? Is it a week? Is it two days? Is it a month? And I think that's very telling, right? That's 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 that piece, right? So so it's been really interesting to see how, because as a, I mean, I, I don't mean this is unique to Omaha by any stretch. This is a, this is a phenomenon pretty much across the states where people have almost no homeborn skill set, right, to to cook. And so then, in the meantime, there's this whole like this wave of people who are who are searching for craft, 
right? So whether it's pickle makers in Red Hook, Brooklyn or whatever, to the home butcher, the whole, you know, whole animal butchery that, you know, now you can take a class. There's a place up in Fort Calhoun and they'll, they'll teach you how to take down a whole pig. You know, this, this, okay, well, we're going to go the completely other end of the spectrum. And by the way, we're going to learn how to cook. I mean, this is the funniest thing. If you're old enough to remember what dinner parties were in the seventies and eighties versus what they are now, you'll see, I mean, people make food out of cookbooks that are written by chefs. So they're basically doing mini restaurants. And so when somebody, and when I go to somebody's house and we'll do a dinner party, it's like you're individually plating people's food, you know, they call that service a la russe, right? And so, you know, it's, well, that doesn't make, I mean, okay, I suppose, but, but there, you, you know, that never was the case. You know, you would, you would set the table and then you'd, you'd serve from the table and this is how dining happened. And, you know, except for some very exclusive company, I mean, this is how dining happened. And now people think that you need to emulate the restaurant at home because that's how far, how far we've, we've lost it. There's no shame in being an adept hobby cook. There's like no shame in that at all. In fact, that's noble to be able to have people come to your home to take care of them and to, to give that kind of hospitality to the home. I mean, that's, that's a real great asset. Like you don't lose credibility because you're doing this on your own versus going in the kitchen. I mean, the kitchen, like there's no faster, I'm going to be bleak again, but there's no faster way to lose your love for the subject than going into that professionally. Right. I mean, we all know that and it's not just exclusive to food. So you know, it takes a certain kind of mindset to want to do that professionally. So how did, how did you emerge from being a 15-year-old that encountered kitchens and that craft, and then this turns out to be your calling? Right, right. I never thought that was going to be my life. I was a late bloomer, so a lot of these things, and I think the industry in general does, it does welcome people who are still kind of trying to figure things out. Um, you know, I, I did what a lot of people do. I was 15 years old and my dad's like, Hey, listen, you got to get a job. Like <laughs> you're a lazy piece of garbage. You need to get some, you need to work. And so I worked in a restaurant, right? He got me a job through a friend. He got me a job down at the Drover. I took the bus from prep down to the Drover. And then I also worked at the, uh, Clark's cafe. And I'm not trying to make it sound like I was one of these kids who like worked all the time. Cause I knew kids like that. I was one of these sort of dabblers, you know, dabble with this down. And it was never something, I mean, certainly at that, at that time, I never thought, man, this is going to be my life. And then later when I worked at this other place that when I talked about that first service, it was my first lunch service. I was 19 and we're at this restaurant, um, in the old market and it was a stage day. It was, it was, uh, in May. So stage means you show up, uh, as green as can be. And they say, uh, aprons and, sh and jackets are over there. Grab a jacket, grab an apron and uh, stand next to this guy and he'll tell you what to do, right? And you don't get paid for it because they want to see whether you're willing to, you know, say yes, chef. And so that's that was the first day on the job there. And I don't know, I mean, shortly after that, and I had, I had begun to have a, a, my personal food awakening had already happened. But in that job at that location is where it kind of, I thought to myself, well, I don't see how I'm ever going to have this be my life. My parents are academics. You know, it just didn't make sense for me to kind of go into a craft. So it was at that job where I got kind of bitten by this bug, this thing that it's like, man, this is, this is really exciting. This is really fun. This is really rewarding. This is fulfilling. And I didn't know, I didn't know quite how to model that for my future. 
Um, and so I kind of went through my 20s sort of meandering about finishing school, traveling, doing other things, imagining myself in other pursuits. I mean, I, I was convinced I was going to be a filmmaker for a good chunk of my 20s and, and pretty much didn't apply myself really totally to any one of those things through that decade. Um, and then eventually kind of settled down and decided I'd, I'd worked here as like a photo assist and whatever. And, and I'm a terrible self uh, marketer. So, you know, so you have to be so good. You have to be so organized. You have to be so good at, at chasing down work. And, and you have to be so good about following up on that. And you have to be so good about billing it properly. And then you got to do the most uncomfortable thing of all, right? You got to call people up and say, hey, where's my check? You know, that's, that's whew. I, I ran out of money just straight up. Like, there was no work. I hadn't had work. And it was like rent was due. What am I going to do? And I think at that point I said to myself, you know what? Okay, so let's let's maybe go a different direction. And and that's kind of how I started to take something else a little bit more seriously. And then that turned. Then that really, I moved to DC for a little bit, and that really kind of I got a good position at a restaurant. That's the Stefan so uh, Momart. Not a great restaurant. A really just a really competent restaurant. And he was a really competent guy. And he was the first model that I had of someone who was like a good family man. He woke up, he woke up in the morning, he worked hard, he was creative, he was earnest, wasn't a drug addict. He was like, he checked all the boxes of like, hey, this is kind of what I would like to be. You have that experience at um, Montmartre, and you mentioned you had a food awakening in your teens, and, and I'm wondering if all of a sudden you managed to join whatever that food awakening was, which I'd like to hear, mm. and this moment where you actually, as an adult, realize this was a viable profession. Mm. Yeah, the food awakening, um, the story that I like to tell is, so we moved to the, the States when I was really young, and... We lived in Berlin. So my mother's an American from upstate New York. My father was a Polish transplant, but by all intents, I mean, they, we spoke German at home and that was, and I mentioned intellectuals, right? So they're all intellectuals. So we would travel back and forth to Europe and certainly when I say Europe, I mean Berlin specifically, frequently. But I mean, and you can attest to this, I mean, Northern Europe in the, again, this is the 70s and 80s, really didn't care much about food. I mean, you had your little things that you cared about that were your localized products, whatever they are. Uh, you know, Berlin was a case where, so, you know, you have, your, you have like the, the Brötchen, the little rolls, you have like butter, you have, you know, just whatever they were, like two or three different ingredients. Breakfast is serious, but everything else is just sort of like a waste. Einstein famously used to say, if he could calculate all the hours he spent eating, you know, how much more the world would benefit from his 
real thought. You know what I mean? Like if you didn't have to eat, you know, this is such a drag to have to eat. And, uh, you know, that's kind of how I think of most of Northern Europe at that time. So it's not like we grew up, my mom was an earnest cook. She tried so hard. She was one of the first kind of like food co-op buyers, you know, she'd go buy bulk stuff. So, I mean, it was always, you know, you can't eat this, no preservative that and rice cake, this, you know, all the bulk buying stuff that you can kind of evoke from the, from the eighties, healthy eating. But, you know, as a kid, the idea of these things was just appalling. I remember we were in Belgium, you know, we were in Belgium, we're in Brussels. And, you know, I like had to eat somewhere normal, which I meant Pizza Hut, of course, you know, here we are like 12. So, yeah, I mean, it was, I knew what I liked and I didn't like what I didn't know, right? That was like pretty ironclad, end of story. And then when I was 15, I got a chance to do an exchange with a family in Southern France. And I know it's a real cliche type story. You know, you go spend a year in Provence, but go spend a year in Provence and see what happens, right? I mean, the idea that food, and by food, I mean dining, I mean the whole bit of it is just so steeped into every day that it doesn't seem like an affect, and it's not an affect, it's real. It seems just so natural and really so beautiful and so alluring and so just enticing now that's not what got me. What got me was, so, you know, we were from, I was born in Berlin, you know, and I didn't, I had a hard time embracing the sort of Midwestern identity. Um, probably that, that con- contrarian type. Um, but we're, you know, we're sitting at dinner. I don't know how many, if it was a weekend or whatever. We're sitting at dinner and the mom would earnestly make, I mean, every dinner, there was like five courses worth of stuff. A first course, a meat course, and then there was... Uh, salad and then cheese and then dessert every day, right? This is, she stayed at home and this is what was ready every night. And so the cheese course came and by cheese course, I'm not making, this isn't elaborate, right? Like there was food on the table. And then in this case, a, you know, like a, a block of, or, you know, like an assortment of cheeses would come to the table and you would have what you like. And portions were on each course weren't very large. You know, it was like, you have a little bit of salad and, you know, and I'm, you know, here I am, I'm trying to not be rude, you know, and, and seem like that, you know, unpleasant house guest and uh the cheese comes so i'm still a little hungry i probably could have eaten a little bit more in the previous courses and the mother says oh you're an american we know you don't like cheese don't feel like you have to take anything and i remember just thinking oh i'm an oh really <laughs> you know like like that you know don't tell me what i can't eat give me that round of yeah, yeah totally <laughs> and it was it wasn't like the very next day i'm like i'm gonna eat everything but it was the first kind of moment where I, th- I said to myself, at least I'm not going to automatically reject something because I don't know what it is. In fact, I'm going to start asking questions. Well, what's this? Well, what's this? What's this? the first moment of that. And so that was like the first of many kind of experiences. And in that, in that trip where frankly, by the end of it, I mean, there was still a lot of vestigial kind of garbage eating that happened for many years after, but the notion that I was curious about eating was what had changed. And that's a light switch that once, you know, bell once rung does not get unrung. And I think that's what the restaurants that I create at their best offer. That's just this aha moment. Oh, this is this is what this is what you're supposed to. When people talk about these things being important, this is why, right? Because they, because it resonates with you. Is that idea of being curious about food something that you try to now instill in the experience? 
that you are trying to create for your diners? There are two sides to that. Uh, on the one hand, curiosity, because you should want to try something that you don't know, right? So goof proof is one way of saying homogenized, right? It's just, you know, you're a, you're a victim of the branding of the central kitchen of like, you know, like the Soviet style, like Politburo foods that you're supposed to eat. And that's, that's just, that's just tragic to me that you would limit yourself to this kind of, I, you know, this basically me as a 10 year old right in Brussels and all I want to do is eat at pizza hut. And so, yeah, a curiosity is a, is a big piece of it. But the other half, the other half is trust. The other half is to say, okay, listen, you know, this is not, this is not the late eighties and early nineties or, you know, this is like, frankly, now a business mostly inhabited by people who are making really kind of idiotic lifestyle choices, financial decisions to give you these, these great experiences. And why would you not take advantage of that? I mean, the trust there can only be violated. And this does happen by the kind of the really just ideological type server or cook who's like demanding that no matter what your preferences are, you have something different that can be, or bartender that can be really frustrating. And even in those cases, you're, you're going to get an extremely thoughtfully created experience. And we want that for everything, right? I've got the Bring me your cup. Pop the cup and try When you're empty, I'll fill you up. We'll drink it down. your perspectives on the food industry in general and our social attitudes towards how we consume food and you know maybe we end up thinking about Michelle Obama's efforts we think about celebrity chefs like Jamie Oliver and and those kind of efforts to reshape how the public interacts with the kitchen interacts with the food industry and what role perhaps you see you have in in shaping that conversation you know it's uh <laughs> that is such a to unpack that it's it's to answer that just seems extraordinarily condescending uh, so I apologize for that in advance uh, because I hate it when people tell me how I'm supposed to behave, right? And and I, I feel like it's it's very um, presumptuous for me to tell people how they're supposed to behave. I would like for people to experience that awakening. And if it happens in restaurants, that's great. If it happens in a year in Provence, that's great. But frankly, if it happens in their home when they're growing up, even better. And so to that extent, the opportunities that you have individually to learn how to have your hospitality happen at home. That means protected dinner times. That means actually making real food from scratch, actually 
treating it as though it was part of your daily routine and an important part of your daily routine, you know, it's, it's, um, to that note, what's the first thing that you'll hear everybody say about why they don't do it? We're too busy. There's no time. Well, I mean, yes, we're all busy. We're all busy, but we also all prioritize things, right? It's because somehow in all this busyness, the average American finds 40 hours a week in television. There's busy and then there's, well, I mean, the game's on, so I'm not going to be cooking when the game's on, you know? And like, that's part of the decision-making process, right? I can understand protecting the game. Maybe you don't protect law and order. And, and protecting that because, frankly, there is a key, and it's not just you, you know, it's, it's, there's this key uh, transmission of culture that happens in the home, too. A uh, thing that I tell everybody at the restaurant at Bouillon, for example, is, you know, we have riettes, pork riettes. That's a, like a braised pork spread, essentially, pate. So it's, it's salted, it's cooked, it's pulled, and then kind of reconstituted, and then potted, then spread over toast. So, so sounds complicated, maybe sounds a little bit exotic, maybe sounds fancy, I don't know. I mean, it's French, has not name riette. But riette is to French kids what peanut butter is to American kids, right? So like everybody comes home from school, you're hungry, it's maybe not dinner time, you pull out a little bit of baguette and you throw on a little, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's just what you have. It's your, just like you would make a peanut butter sandwich at home. So remembering that these foods by and large are just very, very, very hearty home-born products everywhere, right? Everywhere. And, you know, uh, there is obviously a very elegant, high level of cooking that happens around the world. And I'm, I can certainly say that that is an important part of it, too. But at home, just remembering that, there doesn't, that it doesn't have to be exotic. So there's that. And, and, that means, and that means, you know, cooking a little bit. That means, in fact, I have a lot of respect for like the Blue Apron type things because they do encourage, it's such a huge, I mean, if, if we have Blue Apron in one hand or a Blue Apron kind of analog in one hand and a hungry man on the other hand, right? So like, what would you rather have society kind of showing their, their progeny is important, Right. I mean, yeah, I suppose there's a lot of gross commercialization that happens in the Blue Apron thing. Maybe lies about how proficient you're going to be in cooking and how great the dish will ultimately be versus what it is. But the Hunger Match is just gross. And then, and it's like gross end of discussion because you can't get grosser than that for next generation, right? So, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's one side of it. It's the home cook. And again, there's no dishonor. In fact, there's a tremendous amount of honor in being a proficient, proficient hobby cook. It also makes the second half of the conversation, which is the professional cook, frankly, work harder, right? So, you know, there's a reason that people's tastes got as bad as they did. And that has to do with you're incapable of cooking real food at home. You get a taste for artificial foods. And by that, I really do mean artificial foods. I mean, substitutes that are used in canned and frozen products in order to reconstitute them, whether they're froze, they're dried. They're essentially meals ready to eat. I mean, that's like the difference between like an actual pot roast and an MRE pot roast is where our tastes had gone over two generations. And then you go out to eat and you expect those flavors to, to emerge again. I mean, there's an example of that. The restaurant that I'm at right now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do my best to not name names, but I worked at that location when it was the previous restaurant. And there was a dish, a soup, uh, an onion soup of, of note. And, you know, to this day, we still get, um, 
uh, accolades of or I should say, oh, this this soup was so so marvelous. I mean, I used to make the soup, so I know exactly what it was. It was caramelized onions, so a bunch of onions that were run through a chopper and then put on a flat top until caramelized, and then put into a you know cambro, and then you would add um, concentrated and I'm doing fake or scare quotes here, beef stock from a jar, from a, from a plastic jar. And that was the soup. That was the soup. And so to the degree that people love that soup, okay, great. But I mean, that's what it was. And you can only love that soup if you have a taste for that kind of modified yeast extract and those kind of coloring agents and all the, you know, like the list of all the weird chemical stuff, the maltodextrins and things, and malto did not in that case, but you know, all of these, these chemicals that are used to kind of that scientists deliberately put in food to help give you that bliss point, you know, that mixture of fat and sweet and salty that make you make your belly go, Ooh, yeah. You know, that, that's what, if you're, if you're eating that at home, and you have that at a restaurant, you're like, oh, that's what this is supposed to taste like. But when you're eating, if you go through the process of caramelizing onions in combination of like schmaltz that you're pulling off of your stock and butter, and you're using fresh herbs, and you're selecting the onion that you want, and preferably it's a fresher onion, maybe only stored for a certain length of time from a farmer that you trust or you grew yourself, and you go through the process of that, and then you have you know, bones that you've used into a beef stock that you, for, that came from a roast that you did. And maybe you, you incorporate some of the juices from that roast from the, it doesn't have to be elaborate, but it could just be a crock pot for crying out loud. And that's what you use for your stock base. And then you go have this other stuff. I mean, your thought is like, this is disgusting, right? <laughs> so, I mean, that those are points of view and the ability for the um, I mean, just think about it. Think about the meaning. If you come from a, an upbringing where people are actually saying, not only is it important to cook, it's natural. It's like how it just, this is a part of every day. And then you decide to do this professionally. Then just imagine how serious you take the actually professional part, right? The work that you do to refine that kind of rustic, but delicious home style foods to, to create this second level of experience, right? And those are, those, are, those are the cooks that are going to come from homes of cooks who care. Now, it is a challenge. The whole industry is kind of at a reckoning. Man, I just, now you, like, you, <laughs> you mentioned that this is a bleak point of view. All of these things, uh, uh, there's a light and a dark part of, right? There, the, restaurants, the restaurant business, and I'm seeing this across the country, is at a really... Um, a very precarious place. So, you know, we have, I think the Wall Street Journal did a study uh, in the last month or so. There's one restaurant or one food license per 250 people in the United States. I mean, that's untenable, right? 250 people cannot support an establishment. So what does that mean going forward? I mean, it means one thing for like the parent company of Noodles and Company than it does for me, right? But what does it mean? Let me add a couple other little dynamics to that. What does it mean to restaurants like Guy Fieri, for example? This is in the New York Times, I think, two days ago. Guy Fieri's restaurant, flagship restaurant, Times Square or near Times Square, does $17 million a year in business. Can't pay rent, right? So at what level... And there's, you know, so we have these alpha, we have the alpha cities in New York, San Francisco, Chicago, LA now to some degree, D- DC, maybe Boston, whatever. You have these like alpha cities where like 
the absolute top university graduates and movers and shakers and the top performers of the top companies, they have to go live at, right? And when you have to live there, that means you have to go to the best restaurants. And that means that the restaurants are just fighting, clamoring to be part, because this, this restaurant conversation might be just nine or 10 years old to Omaha, but frankly, it's just a part now. It's been woven into the part of the metropolitan American experience. If you're in San Francisco, I mean, like you have to, if you're in New York or San Francisco, you just have to know where to eat. And if you've made it, you have a corner table, you have the table at the spot or what do you know what I mean? Like you have an inside track because the culture part of restaurant touring has really kind of become something kind of next level. And so what that creates is a really weird and unhealthy dynamic where like for a variety of reasons, the disparity of, of wage in restaurants, I mean, there's there's some you know there's some real problems when servers make tips, but they're paid the $15 minimum wage, so they're making extremely good money. Cooks suffer as a result. So where do cooks live? And if you can't make a living wage, and you have to go work in San Francisco, and you have to work, but you can't. You're earning like you're you're earning like $27,000 a year. Well, where do you live? I mean, you live. I mean, you live out of your car, right? So I have someone I know and the story that he tells and I'm going to co-opt it, but it's like he worked at literally the most expensive restaurant in the United States, right? So to go eat there, you're looking at an $800 bill for you, minimum. He lived out of his car for a year, right? So you live out of your car, you work 18 hours a day, you're 22 years old, so it's an adventure, right? But I mean, how sustainable is that? And this is, so like, how does that get remedied? I mean, there's just like a million different problems to what, like how, how you fix that. But it's, it's just, that's the coast. That's maybe the Bay Area. That's this exaggerated end of the bell curve. What is that? How does that pertain to here? Well, frankly, it's the same conversation we're having here, right? It's, there's a ton of downward pressure for dining out. I mean, everybody says, oh, I mean, the two things that are really hard from a restaurant perspective to hear is when someone says, well, that's not worth it, right? Like, that's not worth the price or that's expensive. It's like, well, trying to control entropy is really hard. Like, it's really, really hard. When you're trying to craft an experience that has no interruptions to it and you're trying to execute at a high level. And in fact, in order to make it work, Everybody has to execute at a high level and anything that could possibly go awry under all these duress systems, right? From the chain of command to the chain of custody of product to the timing and all this stuff, none of that stuff is supposed to reach the table. Not even a whiff of that, right? The faintest whiff, right? The show must go on and not only should it go on, but it should be the best show, the command performance of the top talent. You know what I mean? This is what it's supposed to be, right? And you're supposed to be front and center and in, in the best seat in the house every time at the time you want. It's like, ooh, that's, that, that ain't easy. So this is the other half of the goof proof is like, well, people who care are working, they're adding on a whole bunch of variables to try to control to maximize that experience. So what is value in that conversation? I mean, I do think the, the things that I, th one of the comments that I find kind of hysterical, and I don't think, I mean, I, let me just say it first is when people say, I left a restaurant hungry. Well, there's two reasons that a restaurant, you leave a restaurant hungry. Uh, the most obvious is that they ran out of food and there was no more food for you to order. But the other, 
and what people are really saying is that they had an idea of what they were going to budget for dinner. And instead of ordering another dish, they're like, nope, can't do that. That's incomprehensible. I'm just going to leave now hungry. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's an idea of where you think you're prepared to... I mean, all of capitalism operates on a supply and demand, and so it's basically an agreement of where you think you're prepared, to, what you're prepared to spend for the thing that somebody's prepared to give to you. But at some point, you can't offer somebody $20 for a brand new Mercedes, right? I mean, you can, and then see what happens, right? Like there is a, an actual give and take there. And, um, you know, somebody says, well, here's your Mercedes. And if it's a little, you know, one sixtieth model die cast model, you say, well, this, this car, this is too small. I can't get around anywhere in this car. It's like, well, you want to spend $20 on a car. That's what's going to happen. So there's an expectation shift that has to happen in this whole, in this whole business. this food as culture calling with, dare I say, this dark, depressing picture or painting <laughs> of the restaurant business um, for you as an individual businessman, but also generally across, across America? Because those are um, motivators. The struggles of the restaurant industry are such that it's a financially very difficult place to land. And I'm saying this in part because I'm, I am actually trying to discourage people who are on the margins thinking about getting into the restaurant business because they, you know, they're now in their 40s and they had fun working in a restaurant in their 20s. It's a bad idea, right? It's just a frankly bad second career for a, for a whole host of reasons. Um, it's also a business model that requires an intense amount of passion, like deep, deep love and passion. And so, you know, it's, it, it is, it is very important to me. And I'm like, again, if I were to sort of sit here and talk about Omaha, there are many things that I would say or that disaffect me about this place, but I love it unconditionally. And the same is true of this business. I love it unconditionally. I think it is, it is, it is wholly meaningful. So, it is fraught with challenges, fraught with difficulty. And, and again, people who, I think people who aren't serious about it need not apply. People who aren't prepared to make the sacrifices need not apply. But for those who are willing to come on board and be a part of that, it is a magical, transformative, and a deeply uh, rewarding and satisfying experience. What should we end with? Do we end with a call to listeners to get back to their kitchen? Do we end with an exhortation that people take cooking classes? Do, we, <laughs> do, do you offer a, a recipe for people? Just, just go do it. 
and I'm wondering what's on your mind. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I well, let's touch on all those things, frankly. Let's start with the home, right? So I do think that it's an important thing for everyone to have a repertoire of seven days worth of food. So like set that down as a goal for a full week, Sunday to, uh, yeah, Sunday to Saturday, uh, you are breakfast, lunch, and dinner, no repetition, prepared to learn 21 different things you can prepare and do them well, competently, without a recipe card, something that you feel like you're stuck in Alaska and you could, you could execute, right? I think, that's, I think for the home, that's the starting point. Once you feel like you've mastered that, then you can pay more attention to what ingredients you're using in those dishes, maybe a step up, maybe the pork you use for one dish is not the pork you decide to use a few months later, and then see how that, how that varies as you learn what ingredients actually do to recipes. And then once you feel like you've got that down, then you can grow the number of dishes you have. Add a specialty dish. Hey, this is my go-to when we have guests or whatever. But I think that's a good place to start for the, for the home cook. And, you know, cooking classes are, are great. Metro is great. There's a lot of great places and people that you can learn from. But there's also the most powerful tool in the history of all mankind in your pocket right now that you can use to find, to find something to cook. You know, and you brought up Jamie Oliver earlier, but I mean, he is just an absolute wellspring of really cool things that you can do with relative ease at home. It just demands that you have fresh herbs and some fresh garlic and boom, you know, like you're good to go. So, I mean, that, that's, it doesn't take a very long time with the most powerful, you know, research device that humankind has ever devised that everybody carries in their pocket or has on their desk at home to be able to come up with some stuff. You know, I think that's on the one hand, I think that the expectations for, I think the expectations for dining in general are the sort of the, the other half, or sorry, the next piece of this, which is that, you know, it's, it's the, the, the confidence and trust and, and it can be, and there are, it's, it's not a perfect formula. I mean, they're marketing, there are people who market their places that kind of tell you that something maybe isn't. At some point, you should be able to trust your lying eyes. You know, they, they do kind of let you know whether a place is legitimate. But, you know, I feel like because I care about it, I'm able to tell whether other people care about it. And I think that's maybe the most important ingredient to dining out that you can look for. You know, if you find a front of the house that cares about their place, that's a, not just cares about like your check at the end of the night, but cares about you. And I don't mean you as in the, the broader, the dining public you. I mean you, right? You and your night personalized to you. As long as they care about you, I think you're in the right spot. And whether or not that night goes off without a hitch, maybe a different story because things happen. Because <laughs> the joke is restaurants are, are, it's like entropy and hyperdrive you don't know, and they're doing their best to conceal it from you. The things that went horribly awry that you don't know about, the guy who cut his finger off, the fish that didn't arrive, the, you know, like the flooding that's happening in the dish room or what, like none of that stuff is going to, is going to affect you. And if they're, if they're doing a pretty good job of holding that together, well, cheers to them. And then, 
between those experiences, you can tell the people who really pull it off well. And I think that's part of the enjoyment, right, of, of your evening. And then for the people who want to get into the business, who are, who are, who are looking to make this part of their future. And I, you know, again, I came to this late. I was not, you know, I wasn't a gunner. I didn't come out shot out of a cannon at 18. And there are a ton of kids right now who are shot out of a cannon. I think it's important to remember that Mm -hmm. all this stuff is a process, meaning that you don't want to, it is a young person's game in the sense that it's a physical job. And I'm speaking more for the kitchen, but service is also very demanding. It's taxing. And, um, as you get older to protect yourself and your career going forward, no one will tell you how to do that. No one will mentor you in terms of how to save for your retirement when you're in your twenties. No one's going to even think about what your, what your life is going to look like when you're in your early thirties. So if you're serious and you want to protect yourself and your career, when you have children or when you have a, a deep, meaningful relationship with someone else, who probably won't have the same hours as you, or if they are, they're working on another part of the restaurant and you still, you'll hate love each other's guts. It's just to remember that this is a process and you have to be prepared for the next or the thing after the next. And that's a trajectory thing. So you set your job now up to sort of move you to the next sort of tier or place down the road. It's only natural that as you get older, that that arc goes a little bit further. That happens to all of us and everything, but, but that, that is an important piece. And so the people who are 18 and just coming out of school and going to culinary school, like don't worry about running your first restaurant for the people who want to be like sommeliers or master sommeliers. Okay. That's great. But what do you do after you get your MS? It's like, what do you do after you become a chef? Like you're 35, a man, there's like 30 more years of career behind you. What do you, what's up next? So the process, remember the process, I'd say. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. Well, I feel as if we've only really just gone through the first course, <laughs> but this has been a great amuse-bouche. There we go. Paul, thank you for being here. My pleasure. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life. <laughs> <laughs>